Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Hello and welcome to this midweek edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. Trent Kling here with you today. We've got, albeit a shorter show, an important show for you. Best Buy release earnings, they'll be in our news segment. And our interview guest is Carla Anderson, the Senior Director of Merchandising Strategy at Oracle. Carla will go in-depth into questions of inventory coming from a position where Oracle, of course, is a titan of science and technology. They get to see what's going on in a lot of retailers, and there's some Interesting facets to what Carla discusses, not only in terms of inventory, but other aspects, including customer loyalty, which is something we hear all about. Oftentimes on earnings calls, customer loyalty gets thrown around. It's on a lot of PR pitches. Everyone wants to have those loyal customers. But Carla actually has an interesting take on that, and it kind of ties in with our first story regarding Best Buy. So let's get going with that. Quick reminder, like us, rate us, however you find us. If you enjoy the show, we're hitting a lot of episodes here in the new version of the Retail Focus podcast, so it's always good to hear from listeners. You can obviously like us and rate us on any podcast listening platform. You can also check us out on social media at Retail Podcast. And feel free to shoot us a line via email as well, retailpodcast at gmail.com. If you've got an interesting story idea or maybe something you'd like us to cover on the podcast, feel free to reach out. We always enjoy having a dialogue with our listeners. Regarding Best Buy, they released their second quarter earnings, and they were much better than anyone expected. This earnings release took place on Tuesday, August 25th. And for reference, coming into the call, analysts expected diluted earnings per share of $1.05, which would have been a slight decline from last year's $1.08 per share. Instead of a decline, they surged past expectations by a significant margin, and they kind of continue some of that retail momentum that we talked about in last weekend's show with the home improvement sector and all those double-digit comps coming in. Now, this call for Best Buy was for their second quarter of fiscal 2021, their fiscal year ahead of the game, we didn't really know what to expect, given that their stores were basically appointment only for about half of the quarter, about six weeks of the quarter. In their first quarter, after those results came out, that was kind of uninspiring given early pandemic impacts and was down in general over fiscal 2020's first quarter. And this has been a retailer that's been all over the map over the last year. We were kind of bullish, I think, on the appointment of Corey Berry to their CEO position. Then there was some controversy surrounding that. That seems to have fallen a little bit in Barry navigating the company, at least so far successfully, through turbulent waters. It seems like she has done a great job to this point. The main theme of this quarter is they found a way to tread water until the quarter's halfway point, when they were able to reopen those stores and sales surged. As far as comps for the full quarter, Sales were up 5% over last year's second quarter domestically. That's a big jump considering, again, the stores were basically closed for the first six weeks of the quarter. That's excellent leadership. Again, you credit Barry, you credit the entire group there at Best Buy. And the first half of the quarter wasn't a complete disaster. It wasn't a complete zero due simply to their strong e-commerce sales. They were able to successfully route people to the website and they saw a 242% increase in domestic online sales comps. And 
this kind of goes with what a lot of people were thinking is that when you look during the pandemic, people were cooking at home more, people were working from home more, people had to entertain from home more. Well, you can get things to do all of those things at Best Buy, and they saw a massive traffic jump to their website. The overall comp increase for the entire quarter was fueled basically entirely by the second half of the quarter, though. They saw comps slowly rise in the latter half of June and then take off into big increases into the mid-teens by July to where they ended up for the last seven weeks of the quarter. They ended up around 16% up year over year. Again, just talking about comps here. In fact, the company actually noted that they've seen comps up around 20% so far in August. So unlike many retailers, their comps are actually accelerating as pandemic conditions continue where we saw a lot of retailers They kind of popped up in March, April, and May, and they're kind of slowly dying off. Now, Best Buy is actually going in the other direction. And it was no surprise to us, no surprise to anyone, I don't think, to see the products that drove comps. Computing, tablets, and appliances, particularly those kitchen appliances, as more people were staying at home and cooking. And Barry said in prep statements that appliances, which were already comping well, are comping better now that stores are open. So the last really two months of time because these particular things, these kitchen appliances, are experiential products. People buy them more when they can experience the product, touch them, feel them, and so forth. Home theater, actually, they mentioned comps are up big there too after they reopen stores because that's in the same category. And again, people spending more time at home, they're realizing, hey, we can upgrade X, Y, or Z. Home theater, one of the things that's getting upgrades. And it's interesting because that category had been kind of a soft one for Best Buy coming into the pandemic. So the increase in comps was offset somewhat by the closure of 25 locations in the last year. So we're looking at an overall top line revenue increase for the company of around 4%, just shy of 4%. This parlayed itself into a 58% year over year increase in adjusted diluted earnings per share came in at $1.71 versus analyst estimates of $1.05. So beat it by a significant margin there in terms of percentage. In overall dollar amount, net earnings increased from $238 million last year to $432 million this year. That all resulted from a comp increase of 5%. So again, another example of a retailer saying incremental gains in comps and seeing big jumps in net earnings, but it wasn't just those incremental gains in comps. Best Buy actually got some benefit from a few other things we'll talk about. First, we're going to talk about where they saw weaknesses financially, and they noted some interesting aspects of their costs for the quarter, so the money out. For example, they actually reported that the cost of sales for them, what some retailers would call cost of goods sold, was up substantially in comparison to the amount of sales in the quarter. And when you look at a percentage basis, cost of sales was up 5.3%, while enterprise revenue grew, as I mentioned, a tick under 4%. So cost of sales way up compared to revenue. Three main reasons the company gave for the rising cost of sales in comparison to overall enterprise revenue. First, the mix of sales tilted towards e-commerce. That goes without saying, but they also saw substantial costs from rerouting item fulfillment away from stores and to homes, basically fulfilling directly to someone's home rather than that buy online, pick up in store. And they weren't really able to capitalize on buy online, pick up in store. We know from previous quarters, a lot of Best Buy's e-commerce sales touched the individual stores, 
Stores were mostly closed, again, by appointment only, so it wasn't as convenient for the customer to go in there and pick up their merchandise for that first six weeks of the quarter. So as a result, Best Buy saw significant shipping costs because of their discounted or free shipping offers. And where you're looking at something like laptops or tablets or computing software, a lot of times the numbers on those, the costs of those are going to be way up there to where they're going to hit that free shipping threshold. Best Buy took it a bit on the chin in terms of that logistics part of things. So the second thing that really impacted Best Buy on this front was experiencing costs in terms of attempting to stockpile products that were in demand overall. Best Buy wasn't the only company, of course, that saw a big influx of people looking for appliances, looking for computers and computing software, looking for tablets. So Best Buy's buyers had to rush to find the best available options without the benefit of time. And this struggle to keep items in stock, actually, when you look at their end of quarter inventory, it shows there. Merchandise inventories were down around 20% at the end of Q2 versus the end of last year's Q2. So a big impact there. And third, and this was perhaps the most interesting thing we got from the call. This didn't affect costs as much as it impacted overall enterprise revenue, but overall sales using Best Buy branded credit cards, that private label credit card, overall sales there declined. Now, this makes some sense because credit is tighter, of course, but it's actually a pandemic impact that we hadn't even thought about until this call. I'm going to be honest, it hadn't even entered my mind until I saw the earnings release and they talked about it a little bit more in depth when you joined the call because kickbacks from card agreements for large purchases just weren't there as a result of credit tightening Banks generally being more hesitant to extend new credit in a time of pandemic. Now, if you look at the stock market, obviously the stock market's doing all right, but still a lot of people out of work, a lot of people are struggling. Banks are cognizant of that, less likely to extend that new credit. As such, if someone walks into Best Buy, wants to buy a refrigerator, and wants to do it using that Best Buy branded credit card, they're more likely to be turned down. As a result, Best Buy probably felt a pretty severe impact in this quarter versus potential past impacts if this had happened two years ago or three years ago because you're seeing those high dollar items moving at a greater rate but you're not able to capitalize on some of that revenue or some of the kickbacks that you get when people finance it through that private label credit card overall they estimated the decline in revenue from their credit card arrangement cost them 20 basis points on their gross profit rate in the quarter Still, on the positive side of things, they reported reduced selling general and administrative expenses in the quarter in the U.S., down to just 17.1% of overall revenue versus nearly 20% last year. This was as a result of several things, not the least of which that their store operations were basically, as we mentioned, non-existent for six weeks. And they actually broke this down, not in the release, but on the earnings call itself. So payroll was down, electric was down, utilities were down for those individual stores. Payroll down a whopping $100 million in this quarter versus last year, where we've seen some companies that, of course, were open during the entire pandemic. Their payroll was way up due to bonuses and the like. The company also curtailed advertising pretty significantly as well by $40 million versus last year. Additionally, they got a $30 million benefit because they didn't offer any incentive pay for the second quarter for employees, which helped their numbers, although that's never a positive for employees, to be clear, especially some that benefit quite a bit from that incentive pay. Now, looking ahead for Best Buy, they don't expect to see the same 20% comps August has provided 
throughout the quarter. So the last three weeks they see as more, not necessarily an anomaly, but they don't think the entire quarter is going to come in at that 20% increase. Still, they do expect higher year-over-year sales, although CFO Matt Balunas was adamant that they would not release guidance. You still got the feeling on the call, just from the Q&A, from the conversation, from Barry's comments, low teens would be a respectable and easily attainable figure for Best Buy. Also, since stores are back open, they feel like SG&A will fall into line with last year's Q3, so they're not going to see that massive benefit that they got from those reduced costs that they saw in this past quarter. But one thing that we found interesting, going back to that private label credit card facet of their earnings, they did say that they expect lower price sharing revenue for the credit card arrangement to continue into the third quarter. This, again, is happening at a time when comps are up and up big in some markets. And many people, while comps are up, are tight for money overall and looking for ways to finance these big purchases. And you wonder first how the tightening of credit is negatively impacting top-line sales where a lot of people just won't buy a product if they can't finance it, either through the credit card or another facet. And second, exactly what the negative gross margin impacts will be for not only Best Buy, but other companies with these arrangements in the future. And we're not only talking about companies that sell the big dollar items, but you look at a lot of other companies that offer these private label credit cards, you wonder if credit's tightening up there too. And you wonder if some of those commissions that they're earning on those sales might not be making their way back to retailers, might be another way this pandemic affecting retailers. Finally, one last note regarding Best Buy. Barry noted in the analyst Q&A that they saw a number of new customers during the first five months of the pandemic. Barry was very transparent in that Best Buy is still trying to figure out who exactly these customers are. And this is where it ties in with our interview with Carla Anderson, because it takes some time to figure out who your customers are. But as Carla will mention, it sometimes pays to know who your customers aren't because it helps you to define certain characteristics with people that buy and do not buy at your store. However, it is clear to this point, according to Best Buy, that these customers, these new customers that they've won in the last five months, have a higher propensity for repeat purchases than the previous year's new customers. So 2019 new customers from March to August didn't come back as often as 2020 new customers from March to August, at least as far as Best Buy is concerned. That can only mean good things. And Barry underscored on the call, it is important for us to be on our best behavior, not only in terms of cleaning practices and being the retailer that people want to go to, but in terms of making sure everything works seamlessly between the online presence and the in-store presence. And one of the things Barry noted, some of the new customers who bought online were among the wave of the first customers who came to the physical stores as soon as they were open. So a positive sign for Best Buy and just like some of the companies we talked about last week in Ace and Lowe's, it appears as though Best Buy able to win over some market share in what otherwise could have been a very challenging quarter for them. So that brings to a close our news portion of the podcast. Coming up, as we mentioned, an interview with Carla Anderson. Carla is the Senior Director of Merchandising Strategy at Oracle. She will join us from her cabin in Minnesota to talk about not only the goings-on at Oracle Retail, but a number of inventory considerations retailers need to be making and some best practices that she's seen over the course of not only the last few months, but the last few years as far as retailers and their use of technology. 
question of inventory will continue to be on retailers' minds. For some, it's a matter of expanding supply chain channels just to keep up, as we talked about last week with the likes of Home Depot and Lowe's. For others, it's a matter of figuring out the correct path for the inventory that's beginning to stack up due to accumulation after the pandemic has reduced traffic levels or forced closures. Now, here to discuss those issues and more as it pertains to merchandising is Carla Anderson, the Senior Director of Merchandising Strategy at Oracle Retail. Carla, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Looking forward to our discussion. Just so our listeners have an idea of Oracle's depth of involvement with retail, I don't think anyone needs an introduction as far as what Oracle is or who Oracle is. It's such a large company. But what are some of the many ways in which Oracle partners with retailers? And then more specifically, what does your day-to-day look like there? Sure. Thanks. Oracle Retail is a bit unique in the fact that we kind of have such a broad landscape. So we can help retailers with, you know, things from order management, you know, to forecasting, to science and leveraging big data and machine learning and AI and things such as just bringing in a point of sale. So we're able to really meet the unique needs that retail has in today's world, you know, can be as big or as small as a customer, you know, their needs may be. Now, as far as some of these concepts are concerned, I know, you know, AI, big data, those terms get thrown around a lot, especially on the technical side of retail. But just to give our listeners a bit of an idea, how much have those things changed in terms of not only the development, but also the implementation for retail stores over the last 10 years? That's a great question when you think about it, because when you say AI or ML, it's kind of like when you say cloud, you know, everyone has a slightly different definition of of what that is. And I think if we go back 10, you know, even five years, it's getting people comfortable with it, I think was one of the big things, you know, we've had science in our products for a number of years but it's getting people comfortable and getting people to understand it. And instead of, you know, it's building that trust in those type of solutions to say, hey, I've been a buyer, for example, for 20 years. You know, I know better than a system does. So I think it's getting people comfortable and getting the science in the right place for the right application and not just having science for the sake of having science, if that makes sense. That's actually a really good point, and I I don't want to get sidetracked too much, but I I do want to ask a follow-up about that, because you mentioned sometimes in certain circumstances, I'm sure there's pushback against either science, technology, what have you, saying, well, you know, that's an algorithm, but they don't know what I know about, you know, certain things, because I've been doing it for X amount of years. To what extent is it about getting retailers to understand that, hey, this is something to complement, not replace the knowledge base that you've got? Yeah, and you said the exact right word there. It's complementing. And it's, you know, our system or anybody's system really should be there to augment that depth of knowledge that the employee has. And let's use things like machine learning to do some of those more mundane day-to-day tasks and let them focus on the exceptions or let them focus on what's that uniqueness to their business instead of things like oh let me approve a purchase order or let me you know review a discrepancy in a forecast 
So that's where things are heading is it's let's take some of that stuff off and let people work on the cool stuff, the fun stuff, the exciting stuff. It's all about getting to work on the fun stuff after all. That's why <laughs> that's why we're in retail. Well, shifting gears to something that that might not be so fun for retailers, the topic of inventory, especially the last five months. You've been involved with retail for some time now, and I think right now we're seeing these questions of inventory, whether too much or too little, for the first time, significantly at least, since 2008. What are some of the big decisions that are staring retailers in the face regarding distressed inventory, the ones that have too much inventory on hand, particularly those retailers that are seeing those traffic reductions we talked about? Yeah, it's one of the first questions that they have to get a good understanding of is, what do I have? What inventory do I have? Where is it? How much of it? What color size? You know, if we're talking in the fashion space. And I think you still have retailers who struggle with answering that question. And if you can't answer that first question of knowing, well, how much of it and where is it? then it makes those subsequent discussions and decisions a bit harder. And I think this is where I think we've come a long way in the retail space over the last you know, five years, 10 years, having that answer of what do I have and where do I have it? And how much of it? And so I think that's what a lot of retailers had to answer to start with. And then kind of that second part of that is like, where should it be? Hey, if it's in a store that's closed, can I do anything with it? Or is that really unavailable to me to fulfill orders? Or can I leverage that closed store? You know, kind of the term I think on one of your other podcasts was the use of gray store. Can I use that store to fulfill customer orders? Or should I transfer it somewhere else to a store that is open? Lots of questions that retailers have to answer that I don't think any of them were planning on answering six months ago. And they might not have been planning on answering it, but now that you know, some retailers, as you mentioned, might have figured out that there's a problem with not only knowing what inventory they have on hand, but where specifically that inventory is. Is it a situation where once you've figured out the problem exists, it's too late? Or how quickly can retailers really scale up a full knowledge of their inventory, what they have, where they have it, to the extent that they need it in 2020? That's kind of a tough question. And I think it's going to vary a bit by the type of retailer, you know, how big they are, how small they are, what other systems they may have in place. But we have seen some customers of ours spin up some solutions in a matter of weeks to be able to help in that space, to be able to use the inventory they have in the store to open up curbside pickup. So you can't shop in the store, but hey, we can pick up and have curbside available for you. Or we've seen other customers of ours that have opened up those closed department stores, for example, and use those as fulfillment centers. So they knew what inventory they had, but then they needed a way to quickly spin up a solution that let them sell that merchandise and fulfill that merchandise without having a customer present, without running it through a traditional customer shopping journey in the store, for example. I wanted to ask one more thing just regarding retailers that might find themselves with too much inventory on hand. And, and you've mentioned 
kind of trying to work around the hand that certain retailers are dealt. But in terms of leveraging data and technology, what can retailers do to avoid making decisions regarding this inventory that might provide a short-term band-aid, something like deep discounting, but would cause a long-term scar in terms of either their engagement with the customer or financial long-term scar? Yeah, great question. And it's one I thought about when you were asking the previous question is, is one thing to have the inventory, but then how do you now get it out the door? And you're seeing some customers going down this path and it's not just COVID that's pushed this, but if you go back, you know, five years, 10 years, you see that path that some retailers have gone down. It's promotion, 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 and everything is a markdown and an item is on sale. It seems like every week. And I opinion, I don't think that's necessarily the right path for a retailer to take because what is that impact on their brand and what does their brand stand for? So I think everyone needs to take a look at what is that right path? Is it, hey, I may do a few more promotions or maybe I'm going to do less promotions, but add a better discount. So I think it's taking a step back and doing more of that analysis and leveraging you know, the tools at your disposal and bringing science into that and being able to do a lot of that kind of what if analysis and understanding, am I better to do two promotions instead of six and then go into markdown? So trying to eke out every bit of margin that you can get. And I think taking a look to it, what is your brand? Is your brand based around everyday discounting or is your brand more around the quality of the product and what is it that you sell? And so having to balance that tightrope that our retailers are walking today isn't easy. But I think if you know taking that step back, taking a breath and looking at where you're at today, but also where you want to be down the road, because you'll see retailers like JCPenney, you know, who had changed their discount strategy and it didn't quite work. And so then they had to revert. Or you see others that are, you know, it's like, hey, I'm running four promotions on an item in a day. But that's what's known for them. I was just going to mention JCPenney would be a great case study there because it seems like discounts are their brand at this point in time. So when they changed that, it didn't go all that well. But I I do want to transition now to the retailers that are having the opposite problem. They're struggling to keep inventory in stock. I mentioned home improvement retail kind of at the beginning, but you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, Ace, they're seeing record sales. They're seeing products fly off the shelves across all the categories. What are some of the things that you're seeing in terms of retailers who have the problem of trying to keep things on the shelves in terms of attempting to find a workaround or attempting to quickly, through the use of technology and data, augment what they've got in terms of the supply chain? I think that's almost a harder (laughs) question to answer because there you do have finite resources. But I think some of the same questions apply. So it's, again, what do I have? Where do I have it? How much do I have of it? And being able to understand some of those relationships as well. So I've been doing a lot of home improvement projects here at my cabin, and it's that same thing. You kind of have to be able to pivot. It's like, oh, they don't have that paver. 
but do they have a complementary product that will work as good? So I think that's what retailers have to be able to do is pivot. So we know that the supply chain, you know, some of the timelines can't change. So what do I have? What are my alternatives? And then on the customer side of that is being able to provide that information to the customer. So if they are shopping on their site, providing them with as much information as they have, and it goes back to inventory. So we'll go to the paver example. I can look at the store 45 minutes away and be like, oh, they don't have it, but the store an hour away does have it. So then as a customer, you're not driving, getting there and, oh, wait, you don't have it, but I thought you did. So it kind of goes back to inventory at the root of all of this. So making sure, A, your inventory is accurate and you're updating that in as close to real time as you can. So then your customers are getting that information as quickly as they can as well. But then I think this is also where, like I was saying, are there upsell or cross-sell or substitute items that you know the retailer can start positioning and taking that information into how they're forecasting as well. Because if you're out of product A, what happens to product B and product C? And so again, coming back to the topic of science, using that to understand not just the impact of that primary product, but any ancillary products. So now that we've discussed inventory, I, I wanted to take a bit of a step back. And we always enjoy, you know, when we talk to people in the retail landscape that have such a great view of the retail landscape overall and work with many retailers, we always like to ask about best practices here. So in your role, just in general, over the last couple of two, three years, what have you seen from retailers that you would say, hey, that is a really good practice, at least for them, that's really worked out for them? What are some better things that you've seen in terms of retail companies? Not only we're talking about perseverance, but also just killing it in normal times. One of the things that we're seeing, you know, I've been in this industry for far too long, it seems like. What we're seeing is a lot of retailers realizing that they can leverage cloud. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about with how can you make a store associate or a buyer more efficient in their job? And let's take some of that automation out. We're seeing that also on the technology side where we're seeing retailers coming to us and saying, I don't want to manage the day to day. So yeah, I don't want to do that anymore here you know, whether it's us or any other software provider, being able to focus on the unique stuff and, hey, let's go build something that's unique to my business and let that best practice of, hey, here's how forecast runs or here's how items get created or POs get managed. That doesn't have to change. Let's take that. It's best practice. We're just going to use what there is and let's do the unique stuff and the one-off stuff that's unique to our business and gives us that special sauce. And so it's kind of that same thing. Let's focus on the cool stuff and let that more day-to-day stuff, let someone else manage that. And as we kind of wrap it up here, one other topic that I did want to cover was the idea of customer loyalty. We know that The most valuable customer is the one that's already loyal to your retail brand. A lot of retailers have talked 
at length about their individual loyalty programs and how they're driving traffic. But we're in kind of a, a different time here during a pandemic where retailers are trying to drive sales and not every customer is is looking to necessarily spend money because they might be adversely impacted by the pandemic. So that being said, how can companies extend that customer loyalty at this time without coming off as as maybe exploitative of the customer, given that customers are now more alert and educated than ever? Wow, that's a tough one. And I think with that, it kind of goes back to staying true to your brand and who you as a retailer are and thinking of, hey, you are my customer and being appreciative of them and not really expecting something from your customers. I think it's that, but then also looking at who aren't my customers, I think is another thing. So who are the other consumers in there and understanding here's who I have today and yes, taking good care of my customers, but also looking at that broader consumer base and understanding who are they, why aren't they shopping with me and taking some of that back to your customers, you know, those loyal customers that you do have. And I think the other thing on that too, on the customer side is looking at the customer as an individual, really putting that customer at the center of things. So it's not just, you know, blanket promotion after promotion after promotion, but doing something that is truly targeted to that individual and making that customer feel like they're valued and that you as a retailer understand that customer what and why they shop with you. So instead of sending me stuff for a snowblower when I live in warm weather. So it's things like that. So being cognizant of that marketing and those campaigns that you're sending out and, and fine tuning them more because everyone wants to feel like they're valued by where they have their loyalty. Great insight. It's becoming a lot more about individualization and personalization and segmentation as we get further into 2020. Well, Carla Anderson, Senior Director of Merchandising Strategy at Oracle, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy talking to you. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Once again, we thank Carla for joining us on the podcast. It was a fantastic visit and we visited quite a bit just off the air about some of the things that we're seeing here now in such an interesting time for retail. A lot of people would categorize it as a time of potential struggle for retail, but a lot of retailers able to pull out that perseverance and able to really make things work just like Best Buy, who we talked about at the beginning of the show. Well, to kind of wrap things up here, we're going to make it a truncated looking ahead segment because it is a weekday podcast. We'll have a bigger one in Sunday's podcast, of course, but Looking ahead, I'm, I'm looking ahead personally to Sunday's podcast because dollar store earnings 
are coming out this week. Later in the week, Dollar Tree, Dollar General release earnings. We've seen dynamics where Family Dollar, Dollar General really having success in pandemic buying conditions at least early on. We'll get an idea of whether that's continued. We'll also get an idea of whether Dollar Tree specifically was able to rebound. They really started to struggle as you got into April and May and they started to struggle in terms of keeping products on the shelves as well. We've also got a story that I'm interested to talk about. Longtime listeners know we love talking about grocery. New data came out via Produce Market Guide this week regarding produce demand in 2020 versus produce demand in 2019. A lot of interesting breakdowns there. Excited to talk about both of those stories on the podcast. And of course, we've got an interview. Paul Lee will be joining us. It's in the middle of Fashion Go Week, a digital trade show for the fashion industry connecting vendors and retailers and paul will be joining us to discuss the ins and outs of moving a trade show digital if you will thank you to all of the listeners out there a big thanks to Layton behind the scenes and so long until sunday this has been the retail focus podcast for more visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on itunes or stitcher Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.